You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Live from our nation's capital. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for fiscal stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is... Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. COVID-19 pressuring lawmakers to finally get to a deal on fiscal stimulus. Meanwhile, Vice President Mike Pence gets ready for the vaccine, receiving it at an event earlier today at the White House. All of that, plus we check in with Congressman Mike Gallagher on Capitol Hill. Lots to get through. Carefully monitoring the developments coming from Capitol Hill as the House will try to pass a 48-hour continuing resolution to fund federal agencies through at least the weekend while talks on a coronavirus relief package continue. We're going to check in in the next hour with Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Republican, to get a first-hand account of where the negotiations stand Meanwhile, a dispute over an effort led by Republican Senator Pat Toomey to codify the phase out of uh, Federal Reserve emergency lending facilities at year end remains one of the key sticking points on the aid package. So that's what's going on on Fiscal Stimulus Watch. Again, we're carefully monitoring that. I'll bring you the developments as they happen. But we begin tonight with former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton weighing in with reporters earlier today saying that the massive cyber attack on multiple U.S. agencies is the result of President Trump's failure. We have sound on this particular topic. This is a real test of the United States. I just want to say again, the fact the Russians, if that's who it was, can do it should tell us that now everybody else understands they can do it too. Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, speaking with ABC earlier today, said that the silence from President Trump on the cyber attack and other matters of Russia interference is concerning. This president has been silent. I can't understand why he hasn't spoken out. He was silent as well when it came to bounties on the heads of American soldiers by Russians. I just don't understand it. I want to bring into this conversation Hagar Shamali, who is the CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies. Hagar, welcome back to the program. What should the United States be doing right now amidst this massive cyber breach? Thanks, Kevin. Well, it's great to be on, as always. Listen, this is enormously damaging. It's, and I certainly hope the U.S. government is taking it seriously. It has to go all the way at the top, though. So the first thing that you're going to need is President Trump needs to come out with a strong statement. He should be summoning, he and, and Secretary of State Pompeo should be summoning the Russian ambassador, uh, bringing them to the office, admonishing him. Um, and then they should immediately take certain steps to show responses, some sanctions, preferably even uh, efforts against their uh, presence here in the United States, right? Because this is, at the end of the day, this is an act of very sophisticated espionage. And so you want to hit them back in the same way, right? So I can't speak to whether they'll pursue their own cyber attacks. The United States does do that sometimes. But what I mean is telling them that they're going to have to limit their diplomats, that they're going to have to limit their intel officers, that they're going to have to limit the uh, mileage or distance from which they can go away from the embassy, things like that. 
Uh, they need to respond. They need to respond quickly. Otherwise, Russia and all these other countries like China and North Korea are going to think that they can continue doing this type of behavior. To follow up on this, former President Barack Obama, in the waning days of his tenure, faced a similar choice. We'll think back mm-hmm. to 2016 when uh, there was evidence presented to then-President Obama that Putin's government orchestrated the cyber attacks aimed at interfering with the 2016 election, and and not the polls, so to suggest, but the, the massive campaign that we've since seen and released reports from the Department of National Intelligence and whatnot. And Obama levied sanctions against Russia's intelligence services and expelled 35 diplomats. He was criticized at the time and in the years that followed for not going far enough. There, I guess to unpack this, I want to start with the geopolitical question. Why does Russia now, four years later, do the same thing and get and seemingly with no suffering, no consequence or a consequence of disproportionate uh, magnitude? You're right. Listen, you've hit the nail on the head. This started in 2014. I mean, to be honest with you, the Russians have been doing cyber attacks for a quarter century. So they're, they're, uh, you know, they are among the best at this. Uh, as we can see, this attack was extremely sophisticated. But in terms of why they don't fear at all using this weapon against the United States, it's because they haven't seen any real consequence for it. And that really does date back to 2014 and 2015 under President Obama when they successfully hacked uh, a number of U.S. government agencies, and there was no response at the time, none. And then the sanctions that you're talking about that came later on, right before President Trump took office, that was, as you said, it was related to their election interference. Um, And so there was some activity then, but again, by then it's a little too late, too little too late. Certainly when you're talking about dealing with adversaries, this is not working the way the United States works with France or Canada or Germany. You're talking about an adversary that... Um, has as as a, as part of its list of goals is to undermine the democracy of the United States is to get its hands on as much information as it can, um, you know, and and that's why they're pursuing these types of hacks. So these types of hacks, the information mm. they're going to get um, is extremely valuable to them when it comes to Treasury, for example, for them to know who's going to be sanctioned next, so that they can move their assets to protect them, or they can sell information to other countries. But is, I guess is, to interrupt here, Hagar Shamali, who is a former Treasury spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence, having served in both Republican and Democratic administrations, I guess. Uh, you know, here we are, here I am in Washington D.C., where it's Republicans versus Democrats every every day. But as an American priority, the fact that Russia continues to, to cyber attack. Yesterday, we had Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin on the program, a Democrat from Michigan, and she raised the the prospect of of going through the G7. Is it going to take an international type of organization, for lack of a better word, to make sure that the United States can come from a position to defend itself on cybersecurity from a position of strength and with teeth, as she described it, to hinder these horrific efforts? Yes, it's going to take two steps. The first step, and the one of the most important, is beefing up our own cyber defense systems. And our, and that's probably what Bolton is referring to when he says that you know, President Trump hasn't done anything, aside from the fact that he hasn't communicated anything, which is outrageous, is the fact that not enough resources has been put into building up our own cyber defense systems. So the first is that we need a shield to protect ourselves better. And then the second is that we absolutely need to build this international coalition. Congressman Slotkin is totally on the mon- on the ball here. It, she's right. The best thing that we can do is group together with our allies and, and, and beyond allies, the other international partners, to make clear to Russia that this type of behavior is unacceptable. And you can do that through a number of ways. Like I said, you could do sanctions, you could take action against their embassy presence and their diplomatic and, and intelligence presence around the world. You could you could play with, uh, with trade agreements or treaties that we have, uh, arms controls agreements that we have with the country. So there are a number of steps that we can pursue sh- that, that don't involve, for example, military action, but, but something strong enough to communicate to Russia that this is not going to be acceptable. We're monitoring this type of behavior, and we plan on crushing it as soon as we see it. Um, and the worst part, one of the worst parts, aside from the fact that, that they don't fear us 
and and the damage that this has done to national security efforts for years to come is the fact that it does communicate to other countries like China, North Korea, and Iran that do also pursue cyber attacks against the United States that uh, that you know that this is that we're open for business for that type of business and that's not acceptable either. Let me ask you one final question because this is different than a cybersecurity question. But German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the government of Germany opening the door, leaving the door open to Huawei for China. I mean, if, if, if the U.S. and its allies aren't even on the same page in terms of Huawei, this despite the U.S. administration's efforts to do so, I, the, the tech war for 5G is, you know, is, is moving in the wrong direction from the U.S. perspective. Yes, I think... It's, Germany has opened the door to Huawei, like you mentioned, and, and granted there are conditions placed, but as you said, this is a result of a lack of communication. All of the communication that you typically had with, between the U.S. government and our allies has broken down. And, you know, that's certainly obviously what you hear the Biden-Harris uh, team say that they're going to focus on the most, but that's going to take a long time, right? It's not just like they can pick up the phone and that and, and it's going to be reestablished. You're talking about mm. rebuilding years of of cooperation yeah. and and strategy and and efforts to work together Hagar. on a number of priorities. Hagar, um, so I, can't, I, I miss the days when you can just hop on the Acela and you and I can can nerd out over these topics. Uh, at the Hay Adams. Me and, too. Me yeah. too. You know I like it and do this all day. I know. So could I. Hagar Shamali, uh, tell the kids I said hi. And uh, thank you so much, my friend, for joining me on a Friday. I appreciate it as always. Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies. Be sure to check out her new YouTube show, Oh My World. It's on YouTube. Very informative. Former spokesperson for terrorism and financial intelligence. Much more coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on in the program, we talk with Congressman Mike Gallagher to give us a a lowdown on what's been happening in the... uh, in the fiscal stimulus talks and everything that's been going on right there. So much of the news coming out of Washington really driving the currents of the markets and the House planning that stopgap measure through Sunday night. Uh, we're carefully monitoring that. They need some more time to, to dot their I's, cross their T's on the fiscal stimulus finalized plan. Meanwhile, Craig Torres on the Bloomberg Terminal he reports that Federal Reserve Vice Chairman Richard Clarida voicing optimism on the economic outlook thanks to coronavirus vaccines said that the U.S. will likely avoid slipping back into recession as growth rebounds next year. I don't think we will have a double dip, Clarida said earlier on CNBC. So we've got some optimism on this Friday. Let's, let's uh, head on over to the equally optimistic Vincent Signorella. Bloomberg News Global Macro Strategist. Vincent, are you as optimistic as the Fed Vice Chairman? Not not especially, I must say. Especially, uh, Vincent Signorella, way to just dampen my Friday. <laughs> Go ahead, my friend. Well, you know what? I'm still recovering from the Cavadilla meatballs last night. That's fine. Okay. Well, uh, we haven't even touched the seven fishes that I got to ask you about, but no, we're going to no, stick we'll, with we'll the markets there. for now before we take this Friday into the direction of the seven fishes. Go ahead. No, I, I, realistically, I don't think we'll see a double dip. Um, I think we'll de- we will definitely see a pretty harsh winter, uh, in particular if they cannot get uh, the stimulus talks uh, righted. Uh, at the moment, uh, the, the issue, as you well know, uh, Senator Thune said today towards the end of the 
day, uh, you know, expectations of a deal by the end of the day reflected a triumph of hope over experience. So we're not going to expect anything, I think, this weekend. Uh, we hope they will get a continuing uh, resolution to get us to Monday. It would be silly to have the government shut down for the weekend. And then we'll go from there and see, see where they come. I mean, there's, there's, a lot on the, there's a lot on the writing on this, uh, not just the stimulus, but you have the elections uh, runoffs in Georgia uh, and how the public will perceive what would happen in a shutdown and how that might affect that election and then the shape of Congress to come for the next four years or two years, I should say. Well, let's, uh, let's focus for one more minute on Richard Clarida's remarks and his optimism, because it, it was really fascinating to see someone of his stature say that the economy will not, will not go into a double-dip recession. There was some concern a couple of months ago. That's the direction that we are headed in. You look at the economic data coming out of China they've been able to rebound. And what Richard Clarida says, the Federal Reserve Vice Chairman, is that he's equally as optimistic. I mean, what changed in the past couple of months, Vincent Signorella, that has the U.S. now avoiding a double-dip recession? Well, the key, the key thing is the vaccine. I mean, um, and that's what the, the hopes of, of this uh, are for. You know, the expectations on the first quarter are going to be rough. Um, there's, you know, difficulty in the transport of the vaccine. We're hearing from governors uh, all over the country that their vaccine, uh, their, their shipments have been cut for next week unexpectedly and without explanation. So the rollout of this is going to take a little time. Um, but Dr. Fauci is very optimistic by, by spring into the second quarter. Those who will want a vaccine will get a vaccine. Hopefully more people than not will take it. Uh, that said, people will be heading back to work. Restaurants, the ones hopefully that manage to uh, avoid uh, more shutdowns, will be there to, to make it through. And that uh, the second half, we'll see the kind of rebounds uh, that we saw this year from, from the dip in the second quarter. And if that takes place, most economists are looking for a nice, nice rebound in the economy into at the end of this year, and uh, to propel us into 2022 as well. So there is a very good reason for optimism. But we just need to get past the next three months. Even so, the big story on my terminal right now: U.S. stocks fall with lawmaker at odds on aid bill. Uh, U.S. stocks fell after Republican demands left Congress without a deal. On a federal spending bill, Tesla edged higher in heavy trading ahead of its inclusion in the S&P 500. The benchmark index halted a three-day winning streak, though ended well uh, of session lows with a late rally and a flood of trading volume associated with the quarterly expiration of options and futures on stocks and indexes. Have the markets priced in, Vincent Signorella, the prospects of there not being fiscal stimulus, even though my reporting suggests that there will ultimately be some? Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. I think um, I think if we don't see stimulus, it'll be quite a shock to risk markets. I think markets are are, are actually pricing in the stimulus. the The feeling is that you know the the political will of of both both sides of the aisle, and, and this is something you know better than I, um, would not be willing to want it to go into the holiday season as being the scene as the Grinch that stole Christmas and, and have people on, on food lines um, for Christmas Eve, if you will. And it, it just doesn't play well. Um, so regardless of uh, what's going on where people say there's a trillion dollars in savings out there, it's, it's, a, it's a big sign of the inequality gap where a lot of people are hurting quite a lot. And I, I doubt the markets are, are thinking that pessimistically that no bill will be passed. If, if nothing else, they're, they're, just, they're counting on it. Vincent Signorella is with me. He is the Bloomberg News Global Macro Strategist. Vincent, what's your favorite of the seven fishes? Uh, that's a really good question. I'm going to go with the uh, what I one of the things that I will be preparing, which is uh, langostinos in a in a garlic oh. and herb uh, butter sauce. Sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. <laughs> I always go for the spaghetti and mussels. It's my favorite. That's a very good choice, also. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. And honestly, I'm devastated that I can't partake in the, this year. But I've got a sister who told me she wants to do a, a smaller smaller version of the seven fishes i said it's not called six fishes it's not called five fishes it's called seven fishes so what do you want me to do show up with swedish fish like candy i I don't understand but you know it's the season of giving it's the season of gratitude so i'm trying to 
in these socially distant times to remain optimistic. President Trump on Friday signed legislation that could kick Chinese companies off of U.S. exchanges unless American regulators can review their financial audits, a move likely to further escalate tensions between the two countries. I want to get you to weigh in. Is this conscious uncoupling or is this decoupling or whatever the folks in your world are calling it? Or is this just a, 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 the, the right thing to do from, from Washington's perspective? Well, I think, you know, from Washington's perspective, I think at this point, um, and, and what most people and what most traders feel is that these are decisions that should be made by the Biden administration, good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, what, whichever way you voted, um, it, it, it is what it is, and, and people need to get over this. Um, and that the transition needs to happen, and, and anything that's actually done between now and the inauguration, or after the inauguration, is easily undone because these essentially are executive orders which can be reversed. So is China is China a bad actor and, and not playing by the rules in many ways? Yeah, everybody thinks so. Both sides of the aisle agree on that one, and that, um, you know, the, the, the trade with China is quite unfair in many cases. Um, but at this point, you know, singling out individual companies uh, and individuals themselves for sanctions and tariffs probably just – doesn't do a lot, I think, to the markets. I think markets are going to wait to see uh, how the Biden administration approaches trade with China, and that's that's going to be the one that people will bet on. Vincent Signorella, I appreciate you, sir, making the time for me on a Friday. Bloomberg News Global Macro Strategist. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Feast of the Seven Fishes is is this iconic tradition within the Italian community. And if you've never experienced it, I dare I say you haven't lived, because it is the best. It is the best food of your life, to be candid with you. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and on Spotify. Coming up, I interview Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican, about the status of the fiscal stimulus talks. That's next. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. All talk here in Washington, D.C. turns to President-elect Joe Biden's administration. Historically speaking, the markets have performed better when there is divided government. The biggest pressure for fiscal stimulus is an uptick in cases. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. State governments control elections. That's in the Constitution. I think that we can expect a smooth, thoughtful, methodical transition. This is Bloomberg Sound on with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Fiscal stimulus talks continuing into the weekend. This as lawmakers raced to now have a short-term partial government shutdown. Plus, we check in with Congressman Mike Gallagher, a Republican representing the 8th District of Wisconsin, on what the U.S. response should be to that Russian cyber attack. We have a lot to get through, and we begin tonight carefully monitoring the developments uh, on the fiscal stimulus package and where things are going to go uh, over the weekend. This is lawmakers now likely going to have some type of government shutdown uh, in order to continue to get time to dot their I's, cross their T's on getting to some type of an agreement. But the other big story that we are carefully monitoring is the United States' response to the Russia cyber attack. Uh, And we begin tonight with sound on specifically from that attack uh, from from the former national security advisor to President Trump, John Bolton. Take a listen to what he had to say earlier today. This is a real test of the United States. I just want to say again, the fact the Russians, if that's who it was, can do it should tell us that now everybody else understands they can do it, too. Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, speaking with ABC earlier today, calling on the president to weigh in. This president has been silent. I can't understand why he hasn't spoken out. He was silent as well when it came to bounties on the heads of American soldiers by Russians. I just don't understand it. Congressman Mike Gallagher is a Republican representing the 8th District of Wisconsin. He has uh, 
joined the United States Marine Corps the day he graduated from college. He is an expert uh, in uh, all international affairs. He has studied at Georgetown. Uh, he has served in Iraq and was deployed twice in the Al-Anbar province uh, as a commander of intelligence teams uh, and served actually on General Petraeus' Central Command Assessment Team in the Middle East. So uh, we're very thrilled to have him on the program. Congressman, thank you for being here, sir. What should the United States response be to the Russia cyber attack? Well, I think first is to just recognize the scale and the scope of the hack. I mean, this was the hack of the decade. It's one of the biggest espionage campaigns in history, and in large part because SolarWinds software is so widely used. For example, two-thirds of the Department of Energy's plants, sites, and offices use SolarWinds to monitor their networks. And while there's currently no indication that any data was destroyed or exfiltrated, due to the network access that presumably the Russians gained, uh, the fact that they gained that access means they can effectively control the networks and alter and manipulate data in the process. So this should be a massive wake-up call. Uh, it is what we talked about in the Cyberspace Solarium report. We talked about our commission being the 9-11 commission, hopefully without the 9-11, but it is September 10th in cyberspace. The system is blinking red. And if we don't get our act together, we will wake up to a cyber 9-11. I want to I want to follow up here in terms of what some of the lawmakers and policymakers that I've been interviewing this week on this particular topic have told me, which is there needs to be some international consensus around this so that when an, an, an unfortunate, horrific cyber attack like this happens, the United States can respond with some teeth, with some strength. Yeah. And I'm wondering, do you agree with that? Should it be the G7? Or if not, what should be done to make sure that there's order in this disordered space? Well, I do think that in concert with our allies, we should publicly name and shame uh, Russia, uh, the SVR, if indeed they are the culprit. And we should also send a strong signal that if they do anything destructive or disruptive with this access or leak any stolen information, that would be a red line that would invite a response, uh, a response that need not be limited uh, to cyber weapons. But I do think it's incumbent upon us, because this is primarily an espionage campaign, not an act of war, as Senator Durbin somewhat irresponsibly suggested, uh, we need to look inward. And the most immediate thing we can do that we can control is to pass the National Defense Authorization Act, potentially overriding the president's veto, if that's what we need to do. That has 26 of our recommendations from the Cyberspace Alarm Commission that I co-chaired. It is the most significant cyber legislation ever to pass Congress. And in particular, it would give CISA, the cyber agency within DHS, the authority to do threat hunting on .gov networks. And the fact that FireEye, a private company, uh, not the U.S. government, was the first to identify this intrusion, and that it went on for months before it was identified, shows us that we're not doing enough to patrol our networks proactively and we need to give CISA the tools to do that constantly because foreign actors will continue to probe our networks and try and conduct espionage against us. So you think that, that the votes are there to override a presidential veto, should it come to that? I do. It sort of depends on, on who shows up, right? If we're voting, uh, <laughs> if we're voting after Christmas, um, metaphor. <laughs> uh, who actually shows up in Congress, that reduces the denominator necessary. The 290 number gets a little bit lower. But I think we passed with over 320 votes this last time. So we'll see. I've had some Republican colleagues that supported the bill, uh, but said they would not support a veto override. I, I'm not sure I understand that position. Uh, but uh, ironically, uh, there may be progressives who did not support the bill, but would support a veto override, uh, which is also intellectually inconsistent. A but sign of I Washington, D.C. What happens? Uh, to, that's what we need to override the veto. <laughs> Congressman Mike Gallagher is with me. He's a Republican from Wisconsin's 8th Congressional District, Packers country, I guess, right? You're a Green Bay fan, I take it? Titletown, USA. Go Pack Go. Number one <laughs> in the NFC right now. Well, I, you know, all right. Uh, you know, let's just say hopefully Jalen Hurts can turn around my Philadelphia Eagles. All right. Let me, hey, let me I was follow. all for Jalen Hurts. So am I. He beat the Saints. I mean, I, that was good. That helped us out. That's it. For, I know. No one would have thought it. Okay. But I got okay. Christine Barada, my EP, she's in my ear. She's saying, get back on policy, Kev. Come on, buddy. It's Friday. You were so good all week. It's not an Eagles show. I promise. Um, but in terms of, of to, to just ask you one more question on the cyber security threat front, Congressman, I mean, do you think 
I mean, it, I guess from a from a reporter's perspective, the Russians did this in 2016, and President Obama was criticized at the time for not doing enough. I mean, what should President Trump's actions be in response to this in in the final weeks of his office? Uh, step one, uh, don't veto the NDAA. Uh, that would be a good start. And step two, I think he actually has an opportunity to build on a, a very positive legacy that his administration has had over the last four years. It is a fact that um, there are a lot of smart people uh, in the Trump administration, uh, both at NSA, uh, Cyber Command, and at CISA, who spent a lot of time learning the lessons from the 2016 Russian meddling and did a phenomenal job protecting our 2018 elections and our 2020 elections. Trump's Defense Department pioneered the doctrine of persistent engagement and defense forward, which we recommend extending across the entire federal government. So I think it's in the president's own interest to be vocal, to be proactive on this, to push back against the Russians, and to build off the doctrine and the processes that his administration has implemented over the last four years. But to your point, this attack suggests we are not doing nearly enough. And again, we have to empower CISA to do proactive threat hunting on our federal networks because we're going to see more attempts to undermine and gain access to our systems like this in the future. Final question for you on the fiscal stimulus front in the minute left that I have with you. Uh, are you supportive of a 48-hour continuing resolution uh, if it means you know averting a government shutdown? Well, I don't vote for continuing resolutions because yeah. I view them as destructive and a recognition that we haven't done our job. And the fact that we need more time is absurd because, you know, we took over a month off leading up to the election. And more to the point, you know, Congress has been non-essential and optional for six months since the Democrats moved to proxy voting. So I will not vote for continuing resolution, but I will happily stay here over the weekend, uh, make sure my wife doesn't hear this, who's back home in Wisconsin, <laughs> uh, if it leads to a common sense. Uh, agreement, and even if I have to watch uh, the terrible Eagles play on Sunday, wow, time. comes in to my show first time on the program, <laughs> and then just blasts the birds, Congressman. <laughs> I like your style, buddy. You can come back anytime. Mike Gallagher representing the Eighth District of Wisconsin, a Packers fan, but hey, Greta Van Susteren is too. We like Greta. Download the Bloomberg Sound on podcast at Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. And you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. We were running on something and we didn't say forever, but it's all we wanted. You were so in love with simple things and now we're searching for the fire tripping when I was six years old, I broke my leg. And I was running from my brother and his friends. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Happy Friday, folks. We're going to do something a little bit different now on this Friday as we dive into the pandemic with some new data, a new report out from McKinsey. A McKinsey study finds that physicians are the most trusted source of information about the vaccine, and more than 45% of Americans want to wait and see before getting a COVID-19 vaccine, I'm going to ask our EP to silence our chat for us just for a second uh, as we bear with us as we have some slight technical issues. Then we're back on track. There we go. There we go. Um, and I, I bring up this this issue because earlier today, Vice President Mike Pence received the coronavirus vaccine in a televised event at the White House earlier in a bid to encourage Americans to get the vaccine. And he received the first of two doses of the Pfizer vaccine at an office building on the White House compound. Second Lady Karen Pence and Surgeon General Jerome Adams also received the shot. We've got sound on that. Here he is. The FDA advisory panel recommended approval of the Moderna vaccine, and when it is approved, we expect later today we'll be in a position to ship 5.9 million doses of vaccines all across the country next week. Meanwhile, we now know that President-elect Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden will receive their vaccines Monday in Delaware. Here's incoming Press Secretary Jen Psaki about when the couple will take the time uh, to do so. We want to make sure we are not 
um, creating chaos around uh, where he'll be getting it done, uh, but he will be doing it in public, um, which is important to us, as he stated many times, to send a clear message to the public that it is safe. All right. So we bring into this conversation Dr. Pooja Kumar, a partner at McKinsey and Co. Uh, and uh, like I mentioned, that McKinsey has this new study out, which finds that 88 percent of consumers surveyed believe that a vaccine is very or somewhat important to the return of normal activities. And yet there are many others believe who believe that more than 45 percent of Americans want to wait to see before they get a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Kumar, thanks for being here. It, based upon your, your report, Americans know that the vaccine's important, but they're still a little uneasy about uh, how, whether or not they should get it or if they want to get it first. That's right, Kevin, and thanks for having me. I think at a simple level, it comes down to the fact that we see roughly three groups of people, about a fifth of Americans who just say it's unlikely that they will ever get the vaccine, about a third of Americans who say that they're likely to get the vaccine, and then, as you indicate, that 45% in the middle who are really waiting to make up their mind. You know, these are folks who say that they're probably going to want to wait and see what happens over the course of three to 12 months around what others go through, and then and then think about what they will do to make their decision. What can policymakers do to earn the trust of Americans to get them to trust the vaccine initially? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, there's a question for what policymakers should do directly and also a question for what they should do in partnership with others. You know, one of the things that our report goes into is who do people actually listen to? Who do do patients and consumers go to uh, and who do they trust? And overwhelmingly, the number one source that folks trust is their doctors. So 44% of respondents in our survey said that they trust their doctors. And if that stands in contrast to the fact that actually very few people in our survey said that they'd heard from their doctors uh, from yeah. about the vaccine. So I think for us, that's uh, automatically, you know, one thing that we look to, right? How do we engage clinicians and, um, and folks as physicians in particular in helping to talk about this and the importance of the vaccine for returning to normal. I think this is so fascinating. Dr. Pooja Kumar is with us. She is a partner at McKinsey & Co. They've got this great new study out which shows that Americans are more trusting of their physicians than they are of policymakers when uh, being, to simplify it, being asked to, to weigh a health decision on, on whether for them and their families. And it, it, in, a, in a way, Dr. Kumar, this is a very simple issue. People want to hear from their doctors and not from politicians about the health of themselves and their family's health care. So when I'm interviewing lawmakers, for example, on both sides of the aisle who are uh, arguing that there should be uh, additional funds for uh, a a national ad campaign, for example, to boost funding uh, on, on the importance of a vaccine, maybe the funding would be better allocated toward allowing for doctors to educate their communities about the vaccine? Uh, You know, I think it's a great question you're raising. And I think that fundamentally it comes down to who people trust, right? And I think that was loud and clear on in our survey. Um, I will contrast that to where people actually say they get information from. And, you know, Twice as many people say they're getting information from social media as from their doctors today. So there are probably things you can do on all sides of where people are getting information. But but we know that people listen to their doctors. Meanwhile, the McKinsey report finds that 58 to 85 percent of the adult population would need to be vaccinated to reach herd immunity, assuming only adults over the age of 18 receive the vaccine consistent with the initial vaccination trials. And vaccines all have efficacy of 95 percent based on Pfizer and Moderna trial results. So if people aren't getting it, I mean, how problematic could that be if they don't trust the vaccine, if they're not getting it? How, how could this slow down the prospects of the United States reaching herd immunity? Yeah, so this is really the key from all of this. You know, why, why do we have a vaccine? It's to protect ourselves and eventually get our society back to normal. Um, and, you know, the numbers that you raised are, are spot on. But if you the trials so far tell us about how effective the vaccine is. The trials have not told us um, as yet, you know, whether and how much they will reduce transmission. 
And so the number that we might actually have to vaccinate to reach herd immunity is actually could be as high as, you know, 78 to 94 percent, actually. And the reason that this is so important is because this plays a big part in how we can get our lives back um, to some some new normal, you know, some uh, to the normal that we were used to, frankly, before this all hit our lives um, this past spring. You know, when can we start? Uh, congregating in larger groups? When can folks see their grandparents? You know, when can we feel safe yeah. again? Families that have healthcare workers within them. Um, right. When can schools open? A whole okay. host of things are related to reaching right. that level. Dr. Pooja Kumar, partner at McKinsey & Co. Thanks so much for the time. Coming up next, we check in with the panel. What's on their radar? I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 991. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We're making it, folks, to Friday, and we're carefully monitoring the House planning their stopgap through Sunday at midnight. The House will try to pass a 48-hour continuing resolution to fund federal agencies through at least the weekend while talks on a coronavirus relief package continue. Current government funding expires at midnight tonight. The clock striking down. I want to bring into this conversation Colin Reed, GOP strategist and managing director at the Levinson Group. Congrats on the engagement, Colin. And Joel Payne, Democratic strategist, former director of African-American media outreach for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Colin, I mean, do you think that this government shutdown could last longer than they want? Oh, let's hope not, Kev. I mean, I think shutting the government down is not an option anyone wants. But if it's December and it's Washington, D.C., and it's Capitol Hill, uh, sure, as the sun rises in the east, you can bet there's a a long list of things to do and not a lot of time to get them done. But uh, let's hope the government doesn't get shut down, first of all. And then let's hope there's able to be some sort of compromise reached on further COVID relief. Uh, before everyone splits town for the holidays. We've got sound on from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who spoke uh, earlier about why he remains still optimistic on the fiscal stimulus talks. Here he is. I'm even more optimistic now than I was last night that a bipartisan bicameral framework for a major rescue package is very close at hand. Joel Payne, do you still remain optimistic? It's hard to remain optimistic, mostly because of what the consistent patterns that we've seen from our friends on the Republican side of the aisle in Congress. Uh, President Trump, uh, soon to be former President Trump, has not been able to get unity within his party um, on on their opinions related to, um, you know, COVID relief. Um, He has not been able to find unity within his caucus about how to make sure the government stays open. We got Ron Johnson and, and Josh Hawley on the Senate floor today. Um, disagreeing about direct transfer, direct cash transfers to Americans where Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders are on one side of an issue and Ron Johnson on the other side. So I'd like to be optimistic, but unfortunately, the evidence in front of me um, does not make me feel too good about things. I'm sure something will get done, but usually what happens here is that you get half a loaf. And I don't think Americans can afford half a loaf in this environment that we're in right now. From a market perspective, the investor community is as really, we just heard in the last half hour from my colleague, uh, the Bloomberg macro, uh, Bloomberg macro economist, uh, Vincent Signorella, that the markets have not priced in the prospects of there not being a fiscal stimulus. But so everyone's expecting, even, even Joel, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that something small would at least get done. But a dispute over an effort led by Republican Senator Pat Toomey 
of Pennsylvania, likely chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, if Republicans carry Georgia, if Republicans carry Georgia, he wants to codify. Uh, he wants to codify the phase out of Federal Reserve emergency lending facilities at year ends, and remains one of the key sticking points over the aid package. Democrats are saying, Colin, that Toomey's provision would limit the Fed's ability to respond to future crises and is the biggest obstacle to getting a deal on the relief package. So here we have the Fed holding up the talks, Colin Reed. Well, we can argue until we're blue in the face about how we got here. And I think most people just see a lot of bickering and not a lot of progress. But since Joel started the conversation about who's to blame, let's not leave Nancy Pelosi out of this discussion since she's the one who months ago uh, said that she wouldn't pass a bill out of the House unless uh, Joe Biden won the presidency. I mean, she admitted that recently. She did what she often accuses Donald Trump of doing, of staying the quiet part out loud. And she passed a $2 trillion wish list that had no chance of passing, and that was full of things completely unrelated to uh, federal economic relief, uh, just to make a political point. And that's why we're in this position that we are in now, with the clock ticking down and time running out. And uh, a lot of people really hurt because there are a lot of businesses who are getting shut down, whose livelihoods, whose abilities to make a living is being denied them by the government And on one hand. And on the other hand, they're not giving any sort of corresponding economic relief. Uh, I feel like that's something that pretty much everyone should be able to agree on on both sides with a quiet. Well, Joel, I mean, I, I hear you in terms of the calculation, but leaving the partisanship aside just for a minute and to bring us back behind closed doors, did Speaker Pelosi overplay her hand in the lead up to all of this? And what I mean is, even if a smaller package gets done, that's what Leader McConnell had been arguing for for the months. And so did she overreach, Joel? I I don't believe she overreached, and I'm not trying to make it partisan. I mean, I'm pointing out that Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders yeah, no, I hear the you. same side of this issue. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I, I, to, to, to your and point, I wasn't insinuating as not, much. I was, I was just put on your analytical cap for me in, in yeah, the sense no, of, I, I gotcha. yeah. I, I got gotcha. you. Look, I, I think Pelosi, one of the things you have to understand that she was dealing with was a very disjointed message from the people that she was negotiating with. She was negotiating with Steve Mnuchin, who didn't seem like he had clarity of what he was able to offer for months. I mean, we saw those headlines come across for months. So, sure, everybody could have done a better job. And um, I think everybody, you know, this is probably viewed by the public as a pox on everyone's houses. Um, And it's just a fundamental failure of the American people in their hour of need. And I I think I agree with Colin that that is what all of us can agree on, is that Americans want action and hopefully they can get something done. But I'm just pointing out the evidence in front of us does not show that this was the best process for the American people. Oh, I mean, I think everyone would agree on that front. Colin Reed, what's it like to not have a team that's going to go to the Super Bowl this year? Well, I could ask you the same question, Kev. Uh, and in mean, fact, I was going to. Well, with Jalen Hurts back in the uh, quarterback spot, it looks like we have better chance than the New England Patriots, buddy. Uh, I don't know about that. It's been a down year for both of us, but uh, the Patriots fans, no one really feels sorry for us since, as you alluded to, uh, going to the Super Bowl every year is something we have got accustomed to over the last Do few years. Do you remember sure when the Eagles we'll be beat the Patriots? Do you remember that? In the Super Bowl, uh, I believe, with the backup quarterback. I remember. Anyway, how about Georgia? Uh, do you think Republicans are now in a position where they're the underdog in Georgia, truly? Uh, I think that Republicans will likely win both of the Georgia Senate seats. I think they should be closer than they will be, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, you know, these special elections, they are such – the, the ball can bounce any which way. But both of the Democratic candidates are being forced to run really progressive, really liberal can- campaigns in a state that is uh, moving, moving away from Republicans, sure, but is not – you know, my home state of Massachusetts or California in terms of its political ideological makeup. And neither of the Democratic candidates can moderate, can run away from their party on any of these core issues like defunding the police, like socialized medicine, because they need to turn out their base with whom those messages resonate. So I think the election will be close, but I think likely both Republicans should be considered the favorites, uh, particularly as uh, Raphael Warnock's uh, I, I've been told from my friends on the Republican side that the oppo file and him runs deep, and uh, they're just getting started on that. Joel, come in here in terms of that, because I just got a, an email from the Club for Growth uh, press shop, and, and Senator Ted Cruz is going to join uh, down there to campaign for Republicans. I mean, are you more optimistic now that Democrats can pull out an upset? 
I think I understand that this is a fight for the Senate in a in a historically red Georgia in a in in a type of race in a special election that historically favors Republicans. Right. These are turnout elections. So I think most Democrats understand that. I will say I do think it's interesting that Republicans have decided to focus on Raphael Warnock. Um, as opposed to John Ossoff, uh, say what you will about what that might suggest. I also think that the president didn't do his party any favors by forcing Republicans to defend the idea of voting and being involved for the first month of the special election discussion. I mean, uh, he essentially had to go down to Georgia and clarify that he wanted people to vote because he's been casting doubt on voting and not just voting, but voting in Georgia for the last month. I mean, you've got Republican state officials that are asking the president to call off his dog. So I do think Republicans have some challenges, but yeah, they're probably favored just if you look historically at where we are given the politics. All right, coming up next, we're going to check in to see what the panel views is next on their radar. That's what's next with the Bloomberg Sound On panel. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. Next week, we've got Joe Crowley on the air. He's going to join us to weigh in on the fate of Democrats and Republicans in Georgia. That's coming up next week. And Frank Masano will give us a preview of the president-elect's energy picks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Let me play among the stars and let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Love hurts, now you're the girl who's left with no words Your heart's a balloon, but then it bursts It doesn't take I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. That song is Get Out of Your Own Way by the legendary band U2, which just happens to be my all-time favorite band and the theme song, for this program. I want to wish everybody a very happy holiday season and a happy new year. And thank you as always for listening to this program. It is truly been doing hosting this show has truly with this team, Christine Barada, Marufel, uh, Matt Shirley really has been uh, a steady point of this year in very uncertain times. And I've enjoyed it and had a lot of fun uh, and been very grateful to have this this platform. Colin Reed's with me, Republican strategist and managing director at the Levinson Group. Joel Payne, Democratic strategist, former director of African-American media outreach for the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. Both have been integral parts in the sound on panel rotation. So I have deep gratitude for them as well. Okay, we're going to rebrand. Is that what they call it, Christine? Rebrand, <laughs> Rebranding? Retinkering? I don't know. Retooling? The next segment, which is always my favorite, and we, we call it What's on Your Radar. But we're going we're gonna to do some – we're ending the year with some rebranding seeds that we're planting. We're going to call it Sound On What's Next. So instead of telling me, Colin and Joel, what's on your radar, I want you to tell me what's next. What's next? Week? Month? Something that's coming in the future. Spin it forward because that's what we do here at Bloomberg. We spin it forward. We try to look where no one's looking. Uh, in the markets and policy uh, and in the conversation. So, Colin Reed, what's next? One of the things I'm keeping an eye on, Kev, and it's been uh, overlooked somewhat in the last few weeks around all the, um, really setting aside the politics, the miraculous speed behind the development of some of these COVID uh, vaccines. We've got one, one or one and two approved, potentially three on the way. Is in 2021, I think there's going to be a lot more public-private partnership. And in, in many years, 
recently, the, a lot of loud voices, especially on the left, led by folks like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, have really sown the seeds of distrust with private companies uh, and painted them as these evil caricatures who are concerned about profits over all else. And now I just think that uh, with, the, with the vaccine as the primary example, uh, that there's a lot of good that can happen when the, when the private sector teams up with the, the public sector in a way to, to, to get stuff done and, 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 and both can work hand in glove to, to get things done, particularly as, you know, gridlock and partisanship, that fever doesn't really appear to be breaking anytime soon uh, in our political system. So it's going to take the private sector working with the public sector to, to really move things forward. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, Joel Payne, what is next? What's next? You know, you really threw me for a loop there, uh, Kevin. Uh, what That's what I next? do. Well, I can, no, no, it's fine. It's <laughs> fine. I, there's, there's a lot going on. I think, I think something that jumps out to me is what's next is how Republicans, and I hate to be political, but I'm just a nerd about this stuff, how Republicans <laughs> are going to position themselves in the next Congress. And I think we're seeing some of the outlines of that with really kind of focusing on the deficit. I mentioned the Ron Johnson piece earlier. I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans tacking to that as a as a tactic to push back on Joe Biden, given um, how he will be stepping into power in January. And I think you're going to hear that as a repeat argument from Republicans. I think it's going to be a challenge for Democrats of how to counter that message. Um, I think that'll be a big development of the first 100 days of the Biden administration. Interesting. Interesting. Do you think, Joel Payne, to bring it back to Collins point, that that uh, the Biden administration will look to expand some of the public-private partnerships that we've seen kind of work uh, under Operation Warp Speed? That would certainly be consistent with how Joe Biden campaigned throughout the last two years and how he's talked about the type of presidency that he wants to stand up during the uh, transition. I think Joe Biden has every um, incentive in the world to make sure that he continues some of the more popular um, you know, measures that maybe President Trump and his allies put in place that does pull in uh, the private sector. So I don't see any reason why they would step away from that. And just to, to take a broader step back, and we didn't hit this, I talked about this uh, earlier today, uh, this morning on Bloomberg Television and simulcast on Bloomberg Radio with Bloomberg Surveillance. Uh, and that's the pick of Congresswoman Hollins uh, to the Department of Interior. Uh, and of course, Congresswoman Deb Holland, a Democrat of New Mexico, to lead the Department of Interior. She would become the first Native American to do so and to serve as a cabinet secretary. You look at that, you look at Pete Buttigieg, who is the first openly gay cabinet uh, secretary, uh, Joel Payne. Uh, you look at Chair Yellen, female to be Treasury. Uh, uh, this is a very diverse cabinet that he is putting together. Uh, and what does that say about the type of administration that he's going to lead? certainly wants a cabinet that's reflective of the country. Um, he's still being pushed by his friends um, on the on the more progressive side to include even more diversity. But I, I think Joe Biden has made a, a real valiant effort to make sure that that cabinet reflects the country that he is going to be governing come January. I also think, just a side note, maybe you didn't intend this, but Deb Holland, that takes away from Nancy Pelosi's leadership in the in the house which is something i've been watching she's never nancy pelosi has never been wow. with this small of a majority and do you I think, think that they would be able to win that seat back though i mean it's albuquerque new mexico is that a pretty progressive uh, yeah i think in time but but you have to understand that does i mean she's three votes down when you look at richmond you look at holland and marcia fudge and wow. you know there's going to be a lot of consequential votes over this first hundred days or so of the next administration, she's going to be working with a really thin majority, along with, obviously, the losses that Democrats suffered in the last election. So just something to watch out for. It's a different uh, leadership model that she's going to have to pursue than she has in the past. Colin Reed, do you think that the team President-elect Biden is putting together uh, is centrist, is or is it more progressive? than I mean, and, and truthfully, is, is he... Do you, based upon his picks and the public comments, I mean, do you think he's getting ready to govern as a centrist? Well, Joel's right. He's under uh, President-elect Biden's under an immense amount of pressure from his left flank to uh, write checks on all the promise, campaign promises he made uh, to the, the more restless left wing who got got in line behind uh, Joe Biden in the in the campaign, both in the primary and the general election. 
not so much because they liked or wanted him to be president, but just because they despised Donald Trump so much. And I think he's in for a rude awakening, the president-elect is, because the media consumption is so focused on covering all of whatever you know perceived outrage they see from Donald Trump that it, it, it can takes up a lot of time and energy. And then once he's off the stage... Uh, Joe Biden is going to get an amount of media scrutiny and attention that he hasn't yet, and that's when all these like all these issues are going to come to the forefront. So, you know, that's a long way of saying that he, I don't think his picks have received the scrutiny they might not otherwise. But the the confirmation hearings and the before the Senate, those are going to be uh, have a lot of fireworks. Not only because the, the the press will need something else to cover, but also because it'll be one of the first stopping grounds uh, for the 2024 Republican field who has, you know, no fewer than half a dozen or more Republican senator candidates who want to be president and can use those hearings to fillet these picks the same way that Senator Harris, Booker, Warren, Sanders and others did with the Trump picks in 2017. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Colin Reed, Joel Payne, here's what's next for me. The U.S. government planning a half a billion dollar investment in glove production. There was a glove shortfall, plastic gloves, projected to be 37%, 37% annual glove shortfall as a result of all the gloves that we're all wearing at the grocery stores, that doctors are wearing, we're double gloving it, and 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 whatnot. And the Department of Health and Human Services plans to announce a half a billion dollar investment in the domestic production of these plastic gloves in the coming weeks. Wow. Sign of the times. Again, a 37% shortfall according to a new report that is out in terms of the plastic gloves. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Download the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your weekend. I'll see you back here same time, same place on Monday. You're listening to Bloomberg 991. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.